It's PNN. I'm your host, Burke Hines. It's Sunday, April 25, 2021. What a week. We get the Chauvin trial verdict. Thank God he's guilty, but this is not, none of this is over yet. On this week's Justice Report, Janine Moloff will be covering that, and she will also be talking about how policing in the U.S. was never intended to serve and protect anyone but the wealthy corporate interests. And on the same theme, we have Carter Krishnire with a very special report about the huge fiasco around Super League. Uh, big capitalist themes here. Uh, stay tuned for that. That'll be the second segment. But first had a big surprise. I finished uh, part two of the Substack series that I've been working on. This slots right into what we were talking about before with the, you know, the, that fake red brown alliance and all the stuff with no Mickey cons, blah, 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 blah. This follows right on that. It slots right in. This is neoliberals glamping in Death Valley. And I'm going to tell you a story told a few people, but I'm going to tell you a story that I've been dying to tell for a while. It needs to be told. And uh, I'll introduce it here in the next segment. But um, you got to go read it. Link is in the show notes. You got to go read it. And, um, and, you know, there's always more to it. I I had to cut freaking 3000 words out of it. This, this damn weekend could make a book. It was so ridiculous. So uh, enjoy that coming right up. So I've got part two, finally, got part two of my Substack series ready to go. The first part was uh, supercharged McCarthyism, where we were looking at this whole red-brown situation, made-up situation that uh, uh, some people uh, are pushing. Uh, Following in that same vein, this is actually following the, the breadcrumbs from that other piece. So this is called uh, Neoliberals Glamping in Death Valley, uh, colon, Manufacturing Paranoia While Celebrities Shitpost and Sock Puppet Armies Do the Heavy Lifting. I know I need to kind of pare that down, but that's the that's the basic idea here. Uh, so a few years ago, I was asked to attend this conference that was in Death Valley, Nevada, uh, uh, with the... On behalf of the Democratic Progressive Caucus here in Florida, I'm embarrassed to say that that I worked with them. They were they're just turned out to be not not really worth my time. I mean, I, I'm I'm glad I guess I I'm guess I'm glad I got to you know see how things see how the sausage was being made. But um, you know, after you see how the sausage is being made, that's when you become a vegetarian, right? So uh, so they asked me to go to this conference. This was March 2017. Trump had been in office for just, I don't know, 28 days, something like that. Uh, and this conference was being put on by insiders with Daily Kos, and it was being put on for 
political consultants and, you know, people from, you know, different progressive caucuses and those kinds of um, organizational kinds of people. They were expecting more people who actually showed up. I'd say about 50 people were, were there total who came, who came and went. And the, the whole thing is just very bizarre. I mean, start to finish. First of all, why are you having a conference a political conference where people are coming together to share ideas. Why are you having that in Death Valley? I mean, like camping in Death Valley. Why would you even do that? This is uh, March, mid-March 2017. Trump had just taken office. The reason they wanted us out there was because Russia, they wanted to get away from electronics, all electronics, because Russia, by golly, was... uh, surveilling all of these very, very super important people involved in politics. That was the story. And so, okay, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. What do you guys think you got going on here? So I hopped on a plane and then rented a car in Vegas and drove myself out to Death Valley to see what the hell all of this was about. And I think that it's worth mentioning that the uh, that the uh, entire basis, the, the the philosophical basis of this event was that uh, Russia was coming for us. It was it was a hundred percent Russia is coming for us, and so you know, of course I'm interested in finding out you know how people come to these conclusions and you know look people in the eye and and you know try to figure out if there's you know anyone home and uh and you know i i pretty much came away with the um conclusion you could say i i i i feel like i i think i learned a lot you know i did look people in the eye and i did see a lot of people who just cynically buy into every bullshit idea that is that their funders throw at them and so this this was all of that on parade all of that on parade and more now for the sake of time here i I, i'm just gonna like run through this really really quick uh i started from the standpoint of uh you might be noticing you might be noticing recently in the last few years that celebrities are just very interested in politics all of a sudden. And so I wanted to share with you guys what what I had seen in terms of, you know, perhaps where some of that comes from, because this was something that was talked about at this conference as a, um, a new media strategy. So, so like, you know, you go to these things and and there's always like the first session and the first session is always, you know, here's the foundations, here's our ideas about the event. And then uh, then then you might go into a little bit more detail for a little while and then you go into these breakout sessions. Now, I always attend the media breakout sessions for these kinds of events. I mean, and, and it's not necessarily just because of PNN, but I used to publish a, a weekly newspaper. I'm a trained journalist, and that's kind of where I click in in my in what I do. You know, that's that's part of my my activism, if, if you want to call it that. And uh, and it's but it's also where my skills lie. 
because I've been in, uh, do I've been doing this in some form for 25, 30 years for too long. Um, so I go to this media breakout and, uh, the way that it was pitched to us was that we were going to, you know, work on some kind of little issue, some kind of little problem and kind of come away with, with a solution, which is something that is very common at, at workshops, but that's not exactly what happened. Like we sat down for this media workshop and, uh, somebody, uh, uh, even though there wasn't, you know, supposed to be a leader, somebody who was an insider uh, and had already been working with these other Daily Coast people, uh, took over to let us know that that they already had everything that they knew that they were going to do in terms of media. And, uh, and this is how it's going to go. They are not going to use indie media you know, they're, they, they didn't have, they weren't using a media strategy that actually used media. Their media strategy now was utilizing social media and social media being the new media, um, ha- it comes with some advantages for the funders. Now this, this conversation was all about what the funders would do. It wasn't about what's right. It wasn't about what's good. It's about what funders will do. And so funders were very interested in getting celebrities to um, boost uh, messaging. And so I was like, well, yeah, cool. That's great. But this isn't media. This isn't a media strategy. That's social media. And that's the kind of thing that always happens with social media is you try to find other influencers. And they were like, no, 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 no. This is different. This is different. There is a virtuous triangle to this media, uh, social media strategy, whatever they wanted to call it. And uh, and and the the virtuous triangle was that you had a celebrity was boosting information that an influencer would give to them. And then that information that the celebrity tweeted out or shared on Facebook would then be consumed by all of their adoring followers. And they were especially interested in young, uh, young, hot social media influencers, you know, to, to, to do this work. And, you know, I found it interesting, and I mentioned this in the first article, that Nomiki Konst actually ran a, a, a group in Los Angeles called Alliance Hollywood, where they did nothing but work with celebrities to train them in uh, how to do public speaking and how to, you know, kind of work the uh, political uh, communications side of things. So I thought that there was kind of a funny intersection there uh and which of course didn't occur to me until you know just a little a few weeks ago when i started working on the first piece you know and noticing what nomiki const was involved with uh knowing that uh you know from doing the first piece uh just a little review she uh in the context of this Alliance Hollywood, there was uh, events that she did with uh, Marcos Malusis of the Daily Kos. And uh, and it looks like they, they, this was something that didn't quite get off the ground where it was in Los Angeles, but it seems to have been continued in one 
form or another uh, since then. Uh, because you see Nomiki Konst, uh, just for an example, you see Nomiki Konst using uh, uh, influencers, you know, using uh, chat groups and groups of people around her to boost information. And then you see, you know, that information being pushed out to uh, celebrities or or social media influencers who aren't that familiar with the territory so you get that's where you get this pushback where you know actual politicos are going hey wait a minute that's that's you're, you're kind of off base here so that's kind of the texture of what we're talking about uh so we're at this media breakout session and uh, this this person who took control had been a successful blogger who uh, the blog was so successful that she was invited to the White House to meet Obama and then something, something happened and voila, she has a successful political consultancy. I mean, you know, fill in your own blanks there. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the funders basically found somebody that was advantageous to their interests. And she was clearly uh, willing to work with the funders in a way that the funders wanted to work. And so she let us know then back then that the funders were very interested in, um, in in things that didn't have to do with media now you have to imagine me sitting there as a as a you know just in my skin who i am uh and we're at a media breakout and someone is is going off in a tangent talking about social media and using celebrities and all of this stuff. And I'm like, well, hey, wait, wait, you're, you're daily co's people. You guys actually are indie media. Like, why aren't you supporting indie media? Why aren't you doing like that would service your brand? That would make sense to me. And it would it would also that was what I would expect. You know, why? How come you aren't doing that? And the answer was, was that's not what the the funders were interested in. What the funders were interested in was uh, getting celebrities to boost messages. And number two, which is very interesting, the funders were also interested in uh, investing in, quote, new tech um, that would be software that mimics personas online, which is that is sock puppet armies. So she was basically telling us, sitting there telling us that her funders, number one, were going to use celebrities and number to 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 do all their messaging. Uh, and the people, you know, like us, we're just not even needed anymore. Uh, and, the, and also, uh, in order to to support the virtuous triangle, they were developing, they were using software that mimics personas that that would uh extend the reach extend the social reach of this messaging so you know they felt like they had it dialed in with the celebrities they felt like they had it dialed in with the influencers but they were also going the extra mile to invest in this new tech that would mimic personas online. Now that's called sock, sock puppet armies. And we've known about this since at least 2011 when the Guardian reported on the military using, uh, you know, artificial personas to uh, um, uh, infiltrate social media. And, and the critique of using sock puppet armies is, is pretty straightforward. It's a, a 
what they're doing is creating people who are using these bot armies are creating a false consensus in online conversations, crowding out unwelcome opinions and smothering commentaries or reports that do not correspond with their own objectives. So it's a perfect, you know, American capitalist kind of, uh, you know, hedge fund mindset uh, kind of thing. And, you know, in the military context, that's called psychological warfare or psyops. In the context of democratic machine politics, I believe we call this K-Hive. And, you, you know, you, it, it, I think that, uh, that that's fairly obvious, but there's, there, there's a lot of other dimensions to this. Just for the sake of brevity, though, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my boilerplate response to this which is is that we have disclosure laws for political speech for a reason in the United States. Uh, uh, while the atrocious Citizens United decision can make it hard to tell who is funding what, political groups must still disclose that they are engaged in political messaging. They must disclose that they are part of that apparatus. And when these funders are putting money into tech that is software that mimics personas online. We don't know, or I know, you know, but most people don't know that this is political speech being bought and paid for by someone. Now, we don't know if that someone is a pharmaceutical company or a defense contractor or a, a human rights abuser, or it could be China, or it could be Scotland. Who knows? It could be space aliens. We don't know. We're supposed to know. Every piece of political speech that you see, like every piece of direct mail, every yard sign, everything has a disclaimer on it that says this is this was paid for by and you've got the committee, and then you can go look up that committee on the FEC, and you can see what they're about. It's not the same with these armies of sock puppets on social media. And the thing that I keep hammering home on this is that the amount of money being sunk into these things is enormous. All right? So just imagine how much influence People can be buying with these softwares that mimic personas online. Imagine all the influence that can be bought and sold through that. And now think to yourself about K-Hive. Think about how many there are, how it's multiplied, and what it is that they're doing. Now, that's just a taste of this story. There's a lot more to tell. Uh, check it out. The link is in the description. And uh, we'll be right back with Carter Krishnoy. And I want to welcome Kardik Krishnayer this week with uh, some discussion of something that's right up his alley. Uh, it's it's soccer related and it's political related. And uh, of course, I'm talking about the uh, Super League. And I just want Kardik. I want you to kind of introduce this because I'm an, I'm you're the expert, and I am going to mess it up. But tell the listeners 
what this whole controversy was about this week, and then we needed to to discuss why it's so important. Yeah, so for the listeners out there who don't know, um, there was uh, an attempt this past week, and I think most people do know, because this is the first soccer story I can remember in my lifetime becoming a mainstream news story in the United States. There have been soccer stories that have become mainstream sports stories, but even that has been limited, right? It's, it's uh, niche sport or considered a foreign sport by so many Americans, uh, particularly by conservatives, right? They, 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 they tend to hate soccer, uh, American conservatives. But uh, so what happened this past week is you had an effort by the, some of the richest clubs in the world to close off uh, what has been an open competition for years and years and years uh, in Europe. And what, um, let, let, let me briefly explain the difference between American sports models and the sports model in Europe. Uh, the American sports model is where you have these closed leagues, which um, you buy into, right? If you want to buy a team in the NFL or the NBA or the NHL or Major League Baseball, you pay hundreds of millions of dollars to buy a team. And it is a franchise, effectively like a branch office of a larger corporation that is in a certain city. And then, of course, American sports owners, and you know, they have individual owners or groups of owners, uh, can then use that franchise to haggle for uh, tax breaks from, from uh, local governments and, uh, and state governments, et cetera, which we've seen over and over again. And then if they don't get the tax break, they move somewhere where we'll give them the tax break. Uh, the construct of sports is very different in Europe. So effectively, you have local clubs in every little town in, 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 in Western Europe, local football clubs, soccer clubs in, in every little town. They are like the church. They are like the school in, in American uh, towns, in American towns and cities. They are community institutions that historically have been either owned by local owners or have been owned by the community as a whole. In fact, in Germany, it is legally codified in German law. Football clubs have to be owned by 50 plus one uh, membership. So that's members of, uh, of the club who are generally local, who, uh, who uh, have the majority stake in, in every club in that country, including Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund, the two biggest clubs in Germany. And it's very important because they, they were two clubs that said no to this, uh, this attempted Super League this week. They're two clubs that rejected it. And they, effectively, they, uh, they probably can't join anyway without consulting with their members. So uh, their membership organizations, like uh, uh, if you're in a, in a PTA or you're in a, some other sort of membership organization where the members – uh, uh, control the organization. You have democratic votes. So at Borussia Dortmund, Bayern Munich, every club in Germany, a couple of the clubs in Spain still, uh, where they have what they call socios, which are members, you vote on the president. You vote on, uh, you vote on important things. And uh, there, that prevents an individual owner from coming in and buying a, uh, buying a club. So the difference in England Recently has been there has been this this feeding frenzy of um, clubs that eventually passed from local owners as English football became more and more popular. The, the Premier League in England is the most popular football league in the world. I believe it's the most popular sports league in the world. I mean, it's it, it's between it and the NFL. 
Um, I think the, the Premier League in England is the most popular league, and that's the league which has the, the big clubs that I'm sure everyone's heard of, Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, Arsenal, etc. Um, so what's happened recently in England is that you've had individual owners or investment banks or hedge funds buy up clubs. Whoa. And Whoa. most of these, yes, and most <laughs> of these clubs, uh, most of these uh, investment banks, hedge funds, or individual owners that have then uh, uh, turned these, these uh, clubs into PLCs or LLCs uh, or have floated them on the stock market, that's the case with Manchester United, uh, are owned by Americans. In fact, a number of them are owned by Floridians, actually. Uh, it seems like everything comes back to Florida, Brooke, all the time. Always but, a connection. Yeah, always a connection. And so what you now have is you have American owners who have a very different value system. They're not concerned about the community. They're not concerned about kind of the democratic rules. They're not concerned about the fact that in, in European football, you have promotion and relegation. So you can in, be in some small town and be in the fifth division, but if you win your league or finish second in your league four straight years, you're up in the Premier League. Teams go up and down the pyramid all the time. It's sporting merit. It's, it's a meritocracy. It's based on, on who wins and who loses on, on the field. American sports is very different, right? American sports, uh, they have a closed league, as I said. You buy into the league. Uh, they, they have uh, playoffs, right, which they don't have in Europe generally. You know, generally, there's a regular season, and the team that's first finishes first. The team that's last gets relegated to the division below it, uh, and the team that's second to last, same thing. Uh, in addition, they don't have um, they don't have all of these uh, structures to reward teams that uh, that do poorly, like the draft, etc. Because the American mm-hmm. setup is very much kind of a crony capitalist setup. It is it is based around um, buying in billionaires, buying into leagues. And then being able to recoup their investment or not lose money and be rewarded if they perform poorly, right? It, it, disin- it, it disincentivizes uh, performance, in my opinion. It disincentivizes in the opinion of a lot of people. And it disincentivizes in further investment. So what ends up happening after that is uh, – so what ends up happening this week is – oh, oh one, one other point. So in each of the top European leagues, so the the, 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 the – uh, Places that were uh, affected by this, as I said, the German club said no. Part of it are legal reasons. They would have to have their 100,000 members or whatever. In the case of Borussia Dortmund, it's even more than that. Uh, their, their members vote on it. But um, six clubs from England, three clubs from Italy, three clubs from Spain said yes. We want to join this breakaway Super League, which would in fact be a closed competition. Right now, the top teams from each of the leagues in Europe go into an annual competition uh, to to, to uh, award the best team in England. And those uh, are based on um, finishing first, second, third, and your, in, in fourth in your, in your league. What would have happened if this league had gotten off the ground is the teams that were founding the league would have been effectively always in that competition. And the open competition premise where any team can climb up the table and, and, and finish in one of those spots and play in, 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 in the European Champions League uh, was, going to be, uh, was going to be eliminated. So um, who was behind this? This is what's really interesting and what makes it a political story. Who was behind this and then what the reaction was? The reaction is, is, is uh, involved politics. So who was behind this? The, the front man was the Real Madrid president, Florentino Perez, who was very politically uh, 
connected in Spain. However, the other driving forces all were either Americans or connected to the United States. Uh-huh. And there's been, there's been this paranoia in, in the UK in particular for years that Americans were coming to buy, buying up their football clubs uh, because they were going to turn uh, everything into an Americanized model of crony capitalism. And, and uh, remember, football, soccer is a very working class oriented game mm-hmm. in, in the UK. So there's already, uh, 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 truthfully, uh, in the UK working class, uh, um, and particularly among Labour Party members, a suspicion of anything that's American or any American investor, or any American corporation. So effectively, everybody else is American that's involved in this. You have uh, the Glazer family uh, from uh, who owned the Tampa Bay Buccaneers also, who owned Manchester United. They live in Palm Beach. You have John W. Henry, who's the former owner of the Florida Marlins, uh, whose office, who lived in Boca until recently, whose office was in Boca. Uh, he, he was uh, part of the... Uh, uh, the, uh, cooking, cooking this up. Another uh, uh, key figure was Andre Aganelli, the president of Juventus in Turin. Uh, however, Juventus is owned by Fiat Chrysler. And so the advisors around Agnelli are largely American. Uh. And, then, uh, and then also uh, you had Stan Kroenke, who's the heir to the Walmart fortune, who owns... Uh, who owns uh, uh, the uh, Arsenal Football Club in London, uh, as well as uh, a, a, a fellow by the name of Joe Lewis, who's English but uh, lives off a boat here in the Bahamas, owns Tottenham Hotspur. He uh, he 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 is the uh, the de- primary developer of Lake Nona, which I know you're very familiar with. Oh, that is uh, that is so fascinating because yeah. it, it, Lake Nona is one of these big. Uh, developments here in Orlando. It followed on this huge uh, investment, uh, public money investment in the medical corridor over there with the children's hospital. Jeb Bush was the one who put all the money in there. And then, you know, to see this kind of, you can see the crony capitalism already in that area. And then for it to be folded back in to this particular episode of you know the crony capitalism chronicles is is just mind-boggling to me but at the same time it should be expected you know it should it's it should be expected people. right and then the and then uh, uh you had uh, uh, uh the the two non-england non-american groups in england uh the two clubs that got involved were manchester city which is a club i've supported uh, for most of my life uh, they're owned by uh by the uh royal family from abu dhabi but they do have american Americans uh, who were involved in the management of the club uh, on the financial side. And then Chelsea, who is owned by a Russian oligarch, Roman Abramovich, uh, who uh, is close friends with Vladimir Putin. Abramovich um, is the one owner of the, of the list I've just given that actually would go to his club's game matches and have an interest in football. But recently, because of UK sanctions against, Eng- uh, UK sanctions against Russia, and Russian oligarchs and people connected to Putin, he's been unable to travel to the UK as frequently as he as he used to be able to. He got an Israeli passport, which has helped him come in and out a little bit, but he's not uh, in London as often as he used to be. So the decision making has fallen to the chief financial executive for Chelsea Football Club, who is American, Bruce Buck. So um, so even in the not in the cases of the, the clubs that weren't owned by Americans. It seems like a, a lot of the decisions were, um, were, were made by Americans or influenced by Americans. So here's what happens. They, last Sunday, a week ago, 
they send out a press release, these 12 clubs, three clubs in Italy, three clubs in Spain, and then these six English clubs I, I, I talked about, um, that they were forming the Super League. And right away, there was incredible backlash in, 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 in Britain. So, oh, and let me not forget, the money to, 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 to create the Super League that would close off competition and effectively kill uh, – the, the, the ability of, of, of the other clubs, uh, so in England it would be the other 88 professional clubs, um, to, to compete, to, 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 to uh, aspire to be at the top of the pyramid. This, uh, the funding for this was coming from J.P. Morgan, another American company. Wow. So they, they send out a press release on Sunday. Everybody begins to panic. People start organizing. Supporters start talking to one another. I was contacted by people in the UK and was actually making preparations myself to once I get fully vaccinated, maybe go over there this summer and fight this thing. Um, what, what incredibly happened between Sunday at about 4.30 PM British standard time, which is 11.30 AM us time or us Eastern time when this thing got, uh, got rolled out and, uh, 48 or maybe about 52 hours later when it all collapsed was the power of activism among, among football supporters in the UK in particular, because they they have suspicion of American bankers, American financiers, American owners, American hedge funds. Oh, I should mention one of the Italian clubs, AC Milan, one of the leading Italian clubs is owned by Elliott finance, the big, uh, big hedge fund in the U S. So, um, it, the clubs that had been bought up by Americans or sort of Americanized investors were the ones uh, on the leading edge of this. So right away, you had the media in the UK. And it was interesting it, it could, because Sky, um, Sky Broadcasting used to be owned by Rupert Murdoch mm-hmm. and used to be very, very conservative. And what ended up happening when Murdoch sold his assets to Disney um, – the, uh, the, the regulators in, in the European Union, which the UK was in at the time, uh, said, Disney, you have to divest of Sky. So Sky ends up in the hands of Comcast. And Comcast, uh, um, for whatever reason, has a cor- decided cor- from a corporate perspective, it appears that they were uh, or they were just reading the tea leaves of, of supporters, of their consumers, uh, decided to go into overdrive on Sky News and on the Sky Sports Channel. Uh, against uh, against this uh, this super league, and really made the theme about American owners, American investors, Americans who have no feeling for Britain, Americans who have no feeling for community, Americans who are just concerned about money, just concerned about profits, um, and don't care about sporting merit. That they're coming to take our football away, and within 48 hours, the whole thing collapsed, uh, and politicians got involved, etc. But I think what was so telling to me was the cultural differences between what Americans take and accept from corporations and from oligarchy and from uh, in terms of corporate governance and how Americans simply accept certain things that it became obvious this week Europeans would not accept. And in fact, it's it's so bad now, I think, in, in the UK that there's a lot of talk that they legislatively may try and prescribe. I don't know how you unwind all the ownership of these, these clubs, uh, individual owners, but they, they may prescribe uh, the idea of having um, the 50 plus one model in, in, in the UK also, which they have in, in Germany, as I mentioned, which puts 
clubs squarely in the hands of members and the local community uh, because uh, the, few, the, 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 the key cultural touch point in here is that Americans look at, at sports and entertainment as a business mm-hmm. and look at sports and entertainment as an investment uh, uh, to make money, whereas Europeans look at sports and entertainment as exactly that, sporting competition and entertainment for the masses, not uh, a business. And uh, the cultural clash uh, came this week. And it w- the backlash was so great against these American owners and American corporations that it fell apart in 48 hours, including, very interestingly, Brooke, corporations who had nothing to do with this making statements. Wow. Amazon made a statement about how they were opposed to the European Super League and how it, uh, it, it, it uh, uh, infringed on sporting competition and 100, year, hundreds of, uh, 100 years of tradition and, and open competition. Um, but they, they're not even self-aware about the way they do business, right? But they felt like they had to be uh, on – It was all, it's almost like the woke stuff, right? And, and, and well, uh, yeah, social issues in the U.S., right? They have to be on that – they have to be on the right side of this. Yeah, let's, let's for a second appreciate kind of how this came together because I think it's key what you said about Sky Broadcasting being sold to Disney and is Comcast now. And so as a, I would assume what they were doing is as a as, as a very common kind of business decision uh, in terms of how they're going to approach this piece of news, they said, you know, our viewership is looking at this story from from this angle. So we're going to adopt the angle that the fans have taken and that will increase our our viewership. I'm sh- like like to yes, me, that's yes. a, a a rational capitalist kind of kind of way to do that. Uh, I don't. I, I wonder if something like that would ever happen in the U.S. I, I, we'll just set that aside for a second. So it was it, it was this knowledge with with the with the news corporation that if they went the other direction, they were going to lose viewers. Yeah. And maybe face protests and people in the streets who are, who are already in the streets trying to go to go to their stadiums. So keep in mind right now, fans are not allowed at matches in the UK mm-hmm. uh, because of, of COVID. That did not. Uh, but they just come out of lockdown a couple of weeks ago. So fans were able. It almost felt a little bit like the civil disobedience in the US a year ago where that came right out of lockdowns. People uh, are finally liberated to at least go out in the streets. And then what they did is they went to their football stadiums. And tried to uh, and protested and made their voices be heard, including when games were taking place, they have to be outside, but trying to stop the buses from getting into into the ground. The buses of the teams that were uh, that, that 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 were the culprit teams. Liverpool first on on uh, on Monday when they played Leeds, and then Tuesday when things came to a head, when Chelsea's own supporters tried to stop the Chelsea bus from getting into the ground when they were going to play Brighton. Uh, on your point about Sky. Uh, I think that this is where it's also interesting to me because Comcast is an American corporation, but they must they must realize or at least on the editorial side in the UK, they've inherited that infrastructure. They've only owned Sky now for three years, Uh, but they inherited an infrastructure that told them, hey, anti-Americanism sells among the working class in, in the UK. Whoa. And so the, the, the media narrative became very much about Americans. And that included a lot of the uh, 
the writers. I guess it started before Sky picked up on it on Monday. It started on Sunday when some of the more prominent football writers and football writers in the UK tend to be very kind of politicized. Well, I guess we see sports writers on the US also getting more politicized, but sports writers Mm -hmm. and the UK tend to be very politicized just because that's the way the culture is. So they're right away seizing on this American narrative that this is, these are American ideas. These are American bankers. These are American financiers. These are American owners that don't have any feel for their communities view sporting teams as commodities that are tradable and movable and all of this sort of thing. And if we don't stop them here, uh, we're going to lose our game. The Americans are going to ta- effectively take over British football. Mm-hmm. That was the, the narrative coming from some of the written press, which was then picked up in a mass scale and keep in mind, in Britain, more people are reading newspapers. This is this is an important point, I guess. In the UK, more people still read newspapers than in the US. In the US, everyone the newspapers are dying, as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, culturally, the newspaper, whether it's the tabloid, uh, or the broadsheet, or whether it's the the, the kind of you know uh, uh, more uh, intellectual newspaper like the Guardian or the, the Financial Times or whatever, it's still a big part of. Uh, British society. So while Rupert Murdoch's paper, The Sun, uh, did not uh, go after the Yanks the way other papers did, and that's the that's the big right wing tabloid, and it's owned by Murdoch, just like Fox News is owned by Murdoch here. Um, the uh, the other tabloids did, you know, basically the and uh, they use the term Yanks. I mean, the Yank, the term Yanks is a derogatory term in British culture. So they were talking about. These are Yank businessmen, Yank financiers. They're trying to, to create closed leagues. And why are they trying to cr- create closed leagues? It's not only that because they don't uh, believe in open and fair competition, but it's because they're risk averse. So they're crony capitalists. They're used to manipulating systems uh, to, to, to get a desired outcome. And this is what they're doing here. In this country, in the United Kingdom, we believe in open and fair competition and sporting merit. I think that there's some hyperbole on both sides of that, but the reality is this is what happened. The thing spun out of control, and uh, the the anger towards American business and American business practices uh, became the theme of the week, even as much as football itself. I and mean, it became, oh, we're going to lose our football, but who are we losing our football to? Uh, we're losing our football to Americans who are effectively taking the sport away from us. And to the point where... As I mentioned, two of the clubs uh, that, that were involved are not owned by Americans or people who live in the U.S., two of the British clubs, uh, English clubs. And on Sky, there were pundits saying, we think these two are the, the – they're just going along with it basically. Or they went along with it because they're Americans who are working at the club. They, they didn't want to blame those owners because there was a very clear attempt uh, by some of the pundits and analysts to separate the American-owned uh, clubs – from the non-American-owned clubs, even within the, the the group of clubs that were breaking away. So, Brooke, on the on the and I should say, I guess I haven't mentioned it to this point. I guess uh, I missed a very important point. Boris Johnson weighed in on this right away. Oh yeah, this and, is important. Yeah, and saw this as a way to um, take his conservative governance, which has been uh, he's been all over the place of late. I mean, you you could argue his uh, his, his COVID. Reaction. Well, initially, was probably worse than the U.S. Well, it was worse than the U.S. actually. Um, but then he got COVID, and he changed after that. Whereas Trump got COVID and got worse after that, right? So um, 
he he's been playing this populist button pretty well. There's been but there's been some anger even among people uh, uh, toward the left about Johnson's lockdowns because the lockdowns seem very arbitrary. The UK went back under lockdown. They had this tier system which seemed to some people to be very arbitrary. Even the uh, uh, Labour mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham, uh, who uh, was actually you know been very involved in, in politics of football in the past. Uh, although we didn't hear much from him this week, but in the past he has been, was angry at Boris Johnson. Burnham's the guy that ran for Labour Party leader against Jeremy Corbyn in uh, 2015, that would have been, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and finished second uh, to Corbyn. So he's a prominent Labour elected official, and he was effectively attacking Johnson from the right about uh, COVID and, and, and tears and lockdowns. So they just come out of lockdown, and, and, and the PM saw this as a great, and they've just gone through the funeral, uh, the death and funeral of Prince Philip. The, uh, the, uh, the prime minister saw this as a great opportunity to try and win back some working class, what you would consider a kind of working class, uh, uh, progressive, you know, we, we call them progressives, but, you know, Labour Party voters mm-hmm. that may have been disaffected from him. Uh, that may have voted for Brexit. A lot of them didn't vote for Brexit, actually. In fact, uh, the thing I was trying to point out to some of the Americans who were saying, oh, well, these there, there were American liberals who, for some reason, backed this breakaway. Of course, they're probably neoliberals, right, um, mm-hmm. who, were, who were making excuses and saying, oh, well, this is, they, they get activated on this, but they don't do anything about racism and all, all of that sort of stuff. They don't get all fired up about that. Um, and I would point out to them the supporters that they were claiming, and then they would make disparaging comments like, oh, well, these are all just like white working class Brits uh, that are racist and voted for Brexit. In fact, I had to go through the, the results from the Brexit referendum for some of them and point out, hey, actually, the places and the clubs you're talking about were all in Remain areas. And Tottenham, uh, where one of the clubs is the club owned by Joe Lewis, who was the guy who did Bell Plate Nona, uh, they, they elect David Lammy. To, to Parliament, who's a, 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 a black uh, uh, MP, Labour MP, who is one of the most well-known liberal or, you know, to the left uh, uh, MPs in, uh, in the country. And he's, and, and he's black. So you're, you're saying, oh, of course, like always, they want to stereotype. And then this one of the people came back at me and said, well, it's like Trump voters. Every Trump voter is a racist. And I, of course, said, well, does that include the African-Americans and Latinos that voted for Trump if every Trump voter is a racist? Because once I pointed out to this person that actually you're saying these people are racist, but they elect a black MP, a very left left uh, wing black MP. Um, so anyway, uh, people we know people in the center left like to like their stereotype of, uh, as a big part of the reason why Hillary Clinton lost. But so Boris Johnson trying to win back these voters who have, you know, are swing voters now. They voted Tory for the first time because of Brexit recently, uh, but they could very easily swing back to Labour. And coming out of COVID, it looks like public opinion polls uh, have Labour getting a big uh, bump for whenever the next election is. We may be still a few years away. But Johnson grabbed this as a working-class populist issue and, and talked about legislation, talked about... Uh, Sticking it to uh, to these owners, talked about uh, legislation that would make these clubs community owned again. And then he also did an, a very interesting thing, which I know may offend some people, Brooke. Mm-hmm. But it was he decided and it's the one tweet I ended up deleting all week because I've been in the middle of all 
all these battles on Twitter and, and, uh, and, and actually been kind of in a, in a prominent role in terms of analyzing and talking about this in, in the soccer media space. Uh, but Johnson threatened because now because of Brexit, the UK controls its own its own borders again and, and immigration laws threatened to deny work permits to the foreign players of the teams that were breaking away. And that's a big yeah. deal. That's a big deal. And that would be that would effectively dis, uh, uh, remove the visas from all the non British and Irish Irish players are exempted, uh, but British and Irish players that and that Irish thing goes back to the whole kind of uh, the whole controversy over Brexit and the Irish backstop where Ireland is still a member of the EU. But in fact, because of um, Northern Ireland, they have to they have to exempt Ireland from the 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 regulations that they would apply to Europeans to to other EU countries. Uh, But that would have been a very big deal. And it never had to be done, obviously. And who knows if he would have been able to pull that off. But that was the threat, which is very, very significant also, because the other thing that's happened is the majority of these team, uh, the majority of the players on these teams, even though uh, they play in the United Kingdom, are foreign. So that's, uh, in fact, includes some American players on, on two of those teams. Two of those six teams have American players, have, have an American player. So... Uh, that that's uh, kind of what Boris Johnson did. He rallied people, and he also, uh, very very interestingly, um, was then communicating with other heads of state. So Macron came out against it very openly, very early, and there were no French teams in this breakaway, which was also kind of interesting because it looks like what may have happened is none of the French teams were asked because. They already had a sense that in France, we've seen incredible civil disobedience in France the last couple of years, right? Uh-huh. Between the yellow vests and everything else. Uh-huh. There seemed to be – so the ger- two German clubs that were asked said no, as I said. And there's a, there's a, there's a reason that German clubs have to uh, – ha- 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 because of their, their structures mm-hmm. have, to stay, uh, ha- have to stay out of this because of their members. But there seems to be a sentiment that um, – that the French clubs weren't even asked, which is also interesting because then you have um, uh, um, these financiers and bankers and yes, the Europeans who were involved from, from, uh, from Italy and, and Spain, but you have them effectively seeing that they're not, that they're having pro- they're going to have, they have problems in England. They're going to have problems in France. Um, and so why don't we try and cherry pick the European countries and European clubs that may be the richest, but also have the most obedient populations, if you will, the least prone to protest. So, so what you're describing is that there was a kind of a, a fear of the French guillotine that, that the, that that the, yeah, the, the, the French teams and the fans in, in France just weren't going to have that. And they're already mobilized in the streets. So let's, you know, let's just not even, so tell me again, what were the, uh, where were the teams that were asked in who like, like, so who, who kind of sided with the Yankees in this whole. Scenario? Yeah. So, so you had, you had, uh, two clubs in Manchester, a club in Liverpool, three clubs in London, uh, two clubs in Madrid, uh, two clubs in Milan, a club in Turin and a club in Barcelona. 
And who ended up siding with, uh, with, with, with ultimately with the bankers and with the breakaway are, are the Spanish clubs um, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the Italian clubs, which is Juventus and Turin, who, um, as I said, are owned by Fiat Chrysler. Then you have, um, in terms of the, the English clubs, the backlash now is all six English clubs pulled out. And as I, as I said, they're all American influenced. Three of them are directly owned by Americans. One of them is owned by someone who, as I said, lives offshore in the Bahamas and does most of his business in Florida. So that really, if you want to count him as an American, let's, let's do that. And that's four of the six. They all issue these sort of coerced apologies to their supporters, including uh, John Henry, John W. Henry, who, uh, as I mentioned, was the former owner of the Florida Marlins and now owns Liverpool Football Club and used to live in Boca, released what, what, what some people describe as a hostage video. I mean, it, that's what it looked like. Like, basically, wow. we're sorry, we're contrite, but it was obvious that there were PR people forcing him to, to read this. And the apologies have not gone over very well. So what ended up happening is this whole thing falls about part Tuesday evening. So you think Wednesday the apologies are made and everybody gets back to normal. No. In fact, the anti-Americanism, but uh, the anger and uh, anti-Americanism and, and desire to, to punish those who were involved has grown since then to the point where finally on Friday there were protests – in London, uh, on the streets, people burning American flags, Arsenal supporters demanding uh, Sam Kroenke, who, as I mentioned, is the Walmart heir, is an, is an American, uh, sell the club or hand the club over to some sort of collective trust or community trust. Similar protests at, at, at Tottenham, uh, where I mentioned Joe Lewis is the owner who, who, uh, who lives on a boat off the coast here in the Bahamas, right off the coast of, of Fort Lauderdale. Actually, they, he owns a lot of uh, property in, in uh in, in South Florida also. And should mention, he was the final uh, proprietor of Church Street Station in, in downtown Orlando. And that went down just as he was uh, went, went under as he was uh, uh, developing Lake Nona. So a uh, lot of protests against him. And uh, you've got supporters saying, well, they don't support their clubs anymore. They're going to change. They're going to support other clubs uh, or, or, uh, or they, they will only go back to supporting their clubs if these owners sell. And if these owners are bought out now, the problem is this has been going on for so long, Brooke, that these owners have gotten their hands on these clubs in the last 10 or 15 years. They've had 10 or 15 years to negotiate sponsorship deals to, to pile on debt to the club. So, so for example, uh, one of the things that has become uh, really disliked about Americans in England is that Americans come in and they buy these football clubs, but they don't use cash. They use, they, they, they do leverage buyouts and then pour debt onto the books of the, uh, of the clubs. So all of these clubs are swimming in debt, which is why, in theory, they wanted this, um, th- this closed league, this breakaway league, because then J.P. Morgan would finance them and they would, they would begin to clear their debts. But uh, the point is they don't even buy the club in, in a normal way using cash or, or, or having partners, uh, et cetera. So all these protesters who want them to sell their clubs and say, are, are saying yanks out and burning American flags, et, et cetera, on the streets this week, unfortunately, there's, vir- there's virtually no one who is going to buy these clubs because they have saddled them all with debt, wow. um, which is the American way, right? That's, that's another business practice that Americans um, – that, um, that, that is 
acceptable in corporate America that uh, people seem to think is uh, is okay, but is not accepted in Europe, is not accepted in in in, in British society. So um, it's going to be really interesting because the the other thing that I've tried to draw attention to is here I've been fighting Major League Soccer and the soccer leagues in the U.S. that have organized themselves in a very American closed league way. Uh, Major League Soccer is a closed league. You you. Uh, I've been involved with second and third division teams, and we can't get promoted to the first division. To get promoted to the first division, you have to pay uh, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. That's that's how you get promoted in the U.S. In, in England, you get promoted by winning the, the second division or the third division and moving up on the field. In the U.S., you pay, you write a check. So, for example, your club in, in, in your neck of the woods in MLS is Orlando City, which strangely has this very kind of left-wing fan base, yet their fans never – seem to see the irony and hypocrisy of supporting a a club in a closed league who was in a lower division but then got a sugar daddy from Brazil to write a check for $100 million to Major League Soccer so they could go into that league, a closed league, a league they could never fall out of, um, and effectively um, um, fund uh, a, a, a corporation, right? That's what you mm-hmm. do. You're not, a member, you're not a member of Orlando City. I know uh, some of the people we've been involved with politically even or say they're members because they have a thing that says they're a member. They're not a member. They're paying for tickets. Mm-hmm. So that's a fundamental difference. In Germany, you're a member of a club, which means you have voting rights. You effectively have stock if they issued stock. In the U.S., when you're a member, all it means is that you're a consumer that, that, that has to pay X amount of dollars a year to have, uh, have a seat at the stadium. And uh, yeah, and all kinds of cool, cool swag for it, I guess. Yeah. And let's let's land on this, because this is what I think this is what is interesting to me. And it's and it's why this story, I, I think, is is so fascinating. And there's so many different ways to look at it as as someone from the left. But, you know, we need to figure out how to bring that uh, European viewpoint of you know the leveraged buyout and the yankee way of doing business is is anti-social that it's not it it, you don't do it in polite society we have to make it so that that's not acceptable and if you kind of apply that to uh orlando city it's because the people in Florida and 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 the the left here and and you know and I I I know a lot of these people they they don't think at that level they don't look at the level of you know what is really going on here they're they're more involved on this level of I like to get drunk before a game you know which is very fucking American you know <laughs> and uh, and and other people just don't see it that way. We have to learn to start looking at the details of what's going on in our culture and say, this is acceptable and that's not acceptable. Or take take some kind of a, another way of saying it is to take some responsibility. Yeah. So that's the thing that's really bothered me this week, Brooke, is to look look and see how many Americans don't think deeply about this. Americans who, who say who, who, who are filling up my timeline promoting Joe Biden and promoting uh, Harris and promoting uh, 
uh, all, all of these Democrats. Uh, Nikki Fried now is a popular one for them, uh, promoting all these Democrats on Twitter. Yet when I'm making these points and they're seeing British people and British media uh, making these points, they're getting really defensive and saying all of the Brits are xenophobics and they're racists and all this this crazy stuff. When in fact it's their fault. They're not thinking deeply about the fact that they're supporting sp uh, sporting institutions and corporations in this country just because they like to have a good time and they want to they want to go and drink, as you said before the games. They're not thinking deeply about what these 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 things actually are. They're um, they're corporations with a crony capitalist construct, which are made uh, in, in, in the most risk-averse possible way. This is why Americans don't like open competition. I mean, this is another mm -hmm. theory of mine as to why Americans lose in this sport, in, in, in men's soccer, uh, which is a sport played, played very seriously by everyone worldwide, because Americans don't have the ability to compete unless the, the rules are rigged or the game, or, game is rigged or they're the only ones playing the game. This, this, is, this is what I found. It's a metaphor for everything else we see in, in society. It's not just a soccer thing. Because uh, the Americans, the, 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 the point I was going to make about Orlando City is the U.S. itself, the U.S. league structure. And I wrote an article about this at World Soccer Talk that ended up going, they ended up talking about it on, on ESPN, et cetera, uh, this week. Um, the United States has been exempted from rules by FIFA because the U.S. has constantly said in soccer, we're exceptional. Our consumers are different. Our market is different. Our players think differently. So you have to allow us to have our closed leagues where we don't have to compete with anyone, where teams buy in, where we don't have promotion and relegation, where we don't where we pay to play for youth soccer, whereas you don't pay to play in England. You, 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 it's a participatory sport that's funded. And then um, eventually, uh, you know, eventually you, you, you either make it or you don't. Right. In England. And unfortunately, I guess the, 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 the downside of this is in England and Germany and Holland. There are a lot of kids, uh, boys and girls who play soccer at a young age who don't make it and then don't have other things to fall back on. That, that's a fair societal critique. But in the U.S., it's become a province for business. So you pay to play. We have a pay to play thing with youth soccer in the U.S., which they don't have in Europe. Everybody gets scholarships. Everybody has a local community club, as I mentioned, that's owned by local local citizens that that uh, they pay collectively for, for the kid, the talented kid in town uh, boy, on the boys side or the girls side to, to, to develop. So the U.S. has been carved out from all of these rules and these norms in this sport, which has meant the U.S., um, can't compete at, at, at a global level in this sport, both uh, from, a, from a competitive standpoint on the field and off the field. Because clubs like Orlando City, they can't market themselves abroad because they are a close, close a club, close league club that doesn't um, have the ability because uh, uh, of the con con constraints of playing in Major League Soccer. Because again, it's a closed league and, and uh, they limit the number of roster spots. They limit what you can do. That's part of the risk aversion of it. To compete at the global level from a marketing standpoint even. So why are the European clubs so much more uh, popular globally than the American clubs? It's because it, uh, they exist in a marketplace where they actually compete. So this is, this is the interesting thing. I've never been a free market person. But I realized the free market itself, if not um, – if not – rigged with all this crony capitalism is probably better than the American system, which is uh, risk averse, 
closed systems where competition is limited, duopolies and oligarchies and monopolies are formed. Um, and, uh, and, and, and you don't get anywhere. So and the last thing I'll say is, um, just in the interest of full disclosure, I've been involved in a, in a lawsuit against Major League Soccer and U.S. Soccer, Major League Soccer being the, the league Orlando City plays in, uh, to uh, uh, saying that they're violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. And also um, another uh, case that I'm not involved in but, but have, uh, have taken an interest in accuses them of violating all the RICO statutes. But this is the, uh, this is the point. In Europe, there is a certain ethos around open competition and community ownership. In the U.S., there's a certain ethos around crony capitalism and things like leverage buyout. So just to, fi- just to conclude, the leverage buyout has become a big, big deal because what we have seen is even when Chinese investors and Malaysian investors or investors from the Middle East go in and buy football clubs, they tend to do it with cash or they tend to do it with some sort of barter um, or they will take a loan from a bank, but then the loan is on their books, their personal books as owners. What Americans tend to do is they use the club as collateral to, to conduct leverage buyouts and then uh, continue to be, use it as collateral as they pile on debt. Instead of being personally liable, they make the club liable. So that's another key reason why, again, in the UK, people are wanting to are burning American flags and don't want Americans involved in the sport. Wow. Well, this is a this is a fantastic story, and it's very interesting to see uh, American flags being burned uh, in in UK. I mean, there's there's something that's you know that's a throwback to the founding of our country. That is, you know, there's there's some tensions here that are um, that go with our mythos. That's that's also kind of interesting to play with. But for me, it's the political angle on this. Uh, Kartik Krishnar, thank you so much for coming by to explain what's going on with this or what happened with the Super League fiasco. Where can people find you these days? So you can find me on Twitter at KKFLA737, of course, always at the the thefloridasqueeze.com, thefloridasqueeze.com. It's not floridasqueeze.com. People make that mistake all the time, Brooke, which I didn't realize. And uh, I, it's come to my attention recently that people forget about the the, the, the. <laughs> the, the, the before Florida squeeze. Cool. All right. Thank you so much, Cardick. Thank you. And let's welcome Janine Maloff with this week's Justice Report. This week, uh, we've got how policing in the U.S. was never intended to serve and protect, but instead uh, was intended to protect the very wealthy. Hey, Janine. Hey, Brooke. Well, it's true. So I'm just going to get straight into it. First of all, I want to say with the verdicts this week on Derek Chauvin, glad they came down. But Derek Chauvin was not merely a bad apple. And that's the, the narrative that mainstream corporate is trying to push, that this is just a bad apple and we can reform the police. And I'm saying, no, 
Derek Chauvin wasn't merely a bad apple. He was the actual intended product of U.S. policing from the very beginning. So Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all counts in the murder of George Floyd. Uh, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, along with other Democratic politicians, once again framed this case as some bad apples. Except for one problem. That's not true. Policing in the U.S. is filled with Derek Chauvin. The fact that some of Chauvin's colleagues and his boss testified against him does not amount to some sort of collective vindication of policing here. It amounts to basically throwing one of their own under the bus. Chauvin, don't get me wrong, Chauvin deserved conviction, and he deserves to spend the rest of his life in jail, no doubt. But the claims coming from that thin blue line that such behavior is not tolerated, much less preached, is a lie. Chauvin's crimes are baked right in to American policing, just like apple pie. The truth is there are many more Derek Chauvin's who will never face accountability until we face the truth about policing in this country. So the first article that I looked up is from In These Times, and it was written by Sam Mitrani, and this was in 2015, actually. Now, Sam Mitrani is an associate professor of history at the College of DuPage. He, he has a PhD from the University of Illinois at Chicago in 09, and he's also the author of a book entitled The Rise of the Chicago Police Department, Class and Conflict, 1850 to 1894. So Mitrani has a lot to say. First of all, the, the headline of this piece is, quote, the police were created to control working class and poor people, not serve and protect. And I totally agree with him, actually. So Mitrani's basic theme is saying, look, we have to, we have to change things. The police are out of control. They, they are acting basically uh, as one collective criminal thug, thug force. But we can't expect them to be something that they're not. They were designed initially with the intent of being a collective thug force meant to hold down first people of color that were slaves, then through Jim Crow, and also in the late 1800s and early 1900s to hold down uh, migrant workers that were working under atrocious conditions in factories, life-threatening conditions, from, and keeping them from daring to strike for humane treatment. So, you know, Mitrani goes on, this again is in 15, but, you know, he talks about, again, how there are all these liberal discussions about police killings of unarmed black men. Okay, so basically these liberal discussions of recent police killings, and he was, Mitrani was speaking in 2015, so that would have been Michael Brown. Um, there's this Underlying assumption, as I said before, that the police are supposed to protect and serve the general population. After all, that's what they were created to do, right? Except that's a fairy tale. It's a mythology. And it's meant to cover up, to obfuscate the ugly history of policing in the U.S. So the reasoning goes basically, according to you know more mainstream liberals, if we had police forces that would do community-based policing instead of militarized policing, and if they lived in the communities that they serve, and if we made sure that we hired officers that had some degree of empathy um, 
and, and we got rid of the bad apples that somehow, and, if, and we got rid of the racist in their ranks, that somehow it would all magically work out. Except that way of viewing the problem, that, that mainstream liberal way, it rests on a misunderstanding, according to Mitrani, about the origins of the police. In other words, why they were created. And according to Mitrani, quote, the police were not created to protect and serve the population. They were not created to stop crime, at least not as most people understand it. And they were certainly not created to promote justice. The real reason police were created is to protect the new form of wage labor capitalism that emerged in the mid to late 19th century from the threat posed by that system's offspring, the working class, end quote. And, you know, he's right. And he gets into the history of it. And we're going to talk about this several times, actually. So basically, policing in the United States as an, an official force was created to do basically two things. In the South, first during slavery and then during Jim Crow, police were meant during slavery to be groups of slave catchers. And during Jim Crow, the police were meant to basically continue the degradation and the injustice of slavery, even though it was technically Ill, technically made illegal, they kept the system going. The North was a little different. The North and the Middle and the Midwest. The North, in those late 1800s and early 1900s, the police were created to make sure that these new migrant workers that worked in these sweatshops would never collectively bargain, would never go on strike, and that the minute anything like that was mentioned, they acted as strike breakers and thugs and basically beat to death any organizers. Sounds a lot like a banana republic, doesn't it? Except it happened here. And these were mainly migrants. And so basically what happened in the North was that the wealthy elite who ran the governments, they hired thousands of armed men that were meant to basically impose order on these new working class neighborhoods. So basically the new police in the North were armed thugs used to intimidate and brutalize workers uh, for the rich, the sweatshop workers. And it was about class conflict. You know, in this country, there's a lot of nonsense about how we are not, we're a classless society. We don't base judgments on people on their on socioeconomic class, except that's another lie, because we do. And so they talked about how, Mitrani talked about how class conflict was really hitting a fevered pitch in the late 19th century, and especially in cities like Chicago. There were major strikes and, yes, riots in 1867, 1877, 1886, and 1894. This is in Chicago. And Mitrani goes on to say, each time there was an upheaval like this, the police attacked the strikers with extreme violence, just like they're attacking Black Lives Matter right now. And so basically what happened was the police presented themselves as this thin blue line protecting, well, they said civilization, protecting white elite civilization, Mitrani calls it bourgeois, from all the mess of the working class. And this ideology of order that came about in the late 19th century, it's still echoing today, except that today, the people that are viewed as the main threat, besides being poor, are, for the most, most part, black and Latino, as opposed to 
immigrant workers from Southern and Eastern Europe. And even if the working class, they, they, the ruling class didn't get everything they wanted in this, this devil's deal, if you will, okay? They had to give in on some things. So, for instance, municipal governments um, stopped trying to basically implement uh, some sort of, of uh, cessation of Sunday drinking, okay? They used to try to, so basically any sort of um, prohibition on Sunday drinking was lifted, and they hired quite a few immigrant, ironically, immigrant police officers, mainly Irish. And my guess is because they looked white enough. But businessmen, big business still organized themselves. Um, they wanted to make sure police were really isolated from any sense of popular democratic control. And then the police set themselves off. That's when they started wearing uniforms and they set up their own rules for hiring, promotion, and firing. And even though there were complaints about corruption and inefficiency, these growing police in the North gained more and more support from what Mitrani calls the ruling class. So much so that, for instance, Mitrani says in Chicago, businessmen donated money to buy the police additional armaments, whether it's rifles, Gatling guns, gave them buildings, and even money to set up a police pension fund. Sounds a whole lot, and we've talked about this on my other show on Environmental Justice Report, sounds a whole lot like those police foundations we have now, where big corporations give massive amounts of money to police foundations to help them out. Graft, no matter how you spell it, still graft. So there was never a time, according to Mitrani, when big city police neutrally, impartially enforced the law. No way, no how. And let's be honest, the law itself has never been truly neutral. So in the North, people were mainly arrested for what Medtronic calls vaguely defined crimes of things like disorderly conduct and vagrancy. Okay. In other words, the police could arrest anyone that they saw as a threat to, you know, basically whatever order they decided needed to happen. In the postbellum South, the police were there to enforce white supremacy. And they arrested black people on bogus charges, and that was to feed them into convict labor systems, which, which has become the new slavery. So that's what police were set up to do. And the violence that police conducted and then went hand in hand with a sense of, I guess you could say, I don't know if you call it moral, but Mitrani calls it moral separation from those they patrolled. All right. So basically, the police separated themselves uh, in terms of, of ethics, if you will, just like any sociopathic force would, to see themselves as those that are truly good and those other outside people are the problem. So, and you have to remember, when these migrant workers came in, um, they looked alien. They didn't speak the language, just like any new group of people that come in from another country. And white Christians were panicking. They saw themselves again as being outnumbered. Sound familiar? But were the consequences of these careful policies that were engineered to mold the police into a force that was designed to use violence to deal with social problems 
that grew with the development of this wage labor economy. Did, you know, were these just a symptom, a, a, a subset, or was this the main goal? Matrani saying it was the main goal, and I agree. So we've got this going on. The police were major theme is they were created to use violence, quote, to reconcile electoral democracy with industrial capitalism, end quote. And it's true. The police are were designed to be a force against popular democracy any time that that popular democracy went against the very rich. It's no guesswork yet. But Matrani went on to say that, for instance, there was a massive strike on May 3rd, 1886. Um, and oh, I take that back, excuse me. Um, what Matrani went on to say was this. If there was one positive lesson, it was that when workers organized and they refused to cooperate, they could back the police off, quote, from the most galling of their activities. Matrani went on to say resistance on a mass scale could force the police to hesitate, end quote. And that happened in Chicago during the 1880s. Police did pull back from breaking strikes, um, and they tried to bring about some credibility among the working class after uh, they had a major role in brutally crushing an upheaval in 1877. Um, what we have to realize, I've seen this myself in person. Uh, several years ago, this was during Occupy, we had a protest downtown here in St. Louis. And at first, you know, we had unions there, but they were mainly from teachers' unions, um, communication workers, and so on. So most of the participants were skinny teenagers and older people and women. And the police were starting to kettle us. And then all of a sudden, the Teamsters arrived, these big men. And the minute the Teamsters arrived, the police backed off. Because at the end of the day, they're bullies and bullies are cowards. But again, keep in mind, according to Matrani, the quote, the police were created by the ruling class to control working class and poor people, not help them, end quote. And they kept going. So NPR had a show on All Things Considered, and this was in 2020. And the title of the show, what it was on All Things Considered, was the history of police and creating social order in the U.S. And NPR's Ailsa Chang uh, was speaking with Chenjirai Kumanyika, who is an assistant professor at Rutgers University. And this was regarding the historic role of police, the role they play in preserving power and social order. And when we're talking about social order here, we're talking about power dictated by the wealthy, period. So they were talking about, you know, this was right after, I believe, George Floyd. They were talking about the Floyd killing. And Chenjirai Kamenyako was saying, so, quote, so the basic idea is that police are here to protect us, right? I mean, that's what I grew up with, but there's some big problems with that. And the first one is that as so many historians have demonstrated, early America was built by exploiting different kinds of labor and ensuring that black folks remained in their place, that poor white folks would also remain in their place, and that they would kind of protect rich white people from everyone else. And so I think when you understand that context, there's far more evidence to support the view that modern policing was invented to make sure that the social hierarchy remained intact, end quote. Again, it's true. And Kumanyaka explained how police did evolve somewhat 
but it really became, it went from slave patrols, slave hunting patrols, to labor control. And again, Kaminyaka speaks about that same division. In the South, it was about controlling slaves, and then during Jim Crow, it was about arresting black folk for bogus charges and then sending them to basically the convict slave labor situation. In the North, it was about strike breaking. And once again, this is the major issue here. Um, so when we see the police acting as thugs, we should not be shocked. Now, in The Guardian, there was an article, 10 months old, and by Malika Jabalif. And the, um, the headline is, if you're surprised by how the police are acting, you don't understand U.S. history. Policing in America was never created to protect and serve the masses. It can't be reformed because it is designed for violence, end quote. And there's this big picture here. And I kept the picture because it's this singular young black man who is on his knees. His hands are behind his head facing. He's in front of, of a line of police officers. And this was during a protest against um, the murder of George Floyd. So it was almost a year ago. It, this took place in St. Louis. And these police are all wearing battle shields and battle helmets. And this young black man, the only thing he has on is besides normal clothes is his is his face mask. And it still goes on. And once again, the Guardian talks about also, they're talking about how basically because of this, this new thinking about police, there's been a demand for defunding the police. Now you'll hear a lot of reactionaries, a lot of white supremacists say, oh, if you defund the police, the criminals will run rampant. First of all, that's not what defunding the police necessarily means. Defunding the police basically has supporters that run across the entire spectrum. But for the most part, it mainly means taking the extra funding away from police and sending it to social services, public schools, public health, and so on and so forth. The police are overfunded and that's not needed. It doesn't necessarily mean to disband the police. Um, and, you know, to justify that demand, you know, from the last several years, we see police ramming protesters in vehicles, all right? Attacking protesters for no reason, exerting excessive force. The videos are all on YouTube to see. And yet, police budgets, according to The Guardian, have nearly tripled since 1977, and that was as documented by Bloomberg in 2020, in spite of the fact that there were declining crime rates. And we're talking violent crime. But it's not just the fiscal argument. Policing in America, again, can't be reformed because it was designed for violence. The oppression, okay, according to this, art, according to this writer, quote, the oppression is a feature, not a bug, end quote. And it's true. So, Let's look, and this writer is asking you to look beyond the romantization, romantization of police. All right, let's look past the mythology. All right, let's stop whitewashing policing. Policing here in the United States, as this writer says, is steeped in blood. It just is. First, this writer talked about the Texas Rangers. And, you know, we even have TV programs glorifying the Texas Rangers. Walker, okay? 
But the Rangers were named after a group of, quote, a group of white men of the same name who slaughtered Comanche Indians in 1841. And why did they do that? Because they wanted to steal indigenous territory so they could expand westward. And the Rangers are considered the first state police organization. Likewise, as black people fought for their rights, first fought for their freedom to overrule, overthrow slavery and escaping north, again, we know slave patrols were set up to bring them back to captivity. Again, in the north, it's the same theme. Free states, police were de developed in, in basically in industrial cities to control the, what, they, what economic elites called rioting. And it was defended as because rioting was, quote, the only effective political strategy available to exploited workers. And it's true. You know, at this time period, the workers, the, the, um, the workers in the north, in these sweatshops, were barely paid. We had child labor, child abuse that came from the owners of those factories. Workers locked in buildings, left to die, unsafe, unsanitary conditions. You know, the great muckraker Sinclair Lewis wrote an entire novel on it. All right. So once again, there's nothing new here. And police were meant to back up the very rich. But they also had to create an illusion that the order they were pushing was actually maintained under rule of law and not at the whim of the very rich. And this continues right now as police attack Black Lives Matter and for them occupy for alleged crimes which are constantly which constitute constitutionally protected activities. And we see that even further where we see state legislatures all over the country criminalizing First Amendment activities in order to back up the police when they come to crack skulls. Okay? We have Congress's 1850 Fugitive Slave Act incentivized law enforcement to capture blacks, and it goes on. And now we have, we're still dealing with white supremacy. And again, this writer is an additional writer saying, look, trying to reform the police is a fool's errand. And according to this article, quote, abolitionists today assert that policing and incarceration must move past modest proposals that fundamentally maintain the system. The billions of dollars that government spent on increasingly militarized police can be better suit it can be better used to address the underlying socioeconomic conditions contribute to police encounters, end quote. And it's true. Okay. Instead of arresting people for what is protected First Amendment activity, instead of criminalizing trivial things, we, should, we don't need all this police. We need to basically rebuild our infrastructure. We need jobs. We need strong public schools. We need social services. We need mental health services. We need public health. All of these things. It's amazing, but when you look at the budgets of most states and most large cities, you will find that as municipal governments cut funding to public education, as they cut funding, what little funding there was for mental health, as they cut um, public health services. Here in Missouri, we have no public health. There is no public health service. There is no free hospital. There is nothing. Other states have a, 
The Republicans here made sure that we had no public health. When they cut budgets for that, when they cut budgets for everything, including trash pickup. But what budget do they never cut? The police. Because the police are the thugs that back up the rich. So we're going to go ahead now. So there's an article from the New York Times, and it was published last June in 2020, and then updated again. And it was written by Amanda Taub, and the headline is Police the Public or Protected for U.S. in Crisis Hard Lessons from Other Countries. Okay? As Americans, we love to talk about how we have real justice here. We're not like those banana republics. We're not like those dictatorships where there's a police state. Well, those claims are wrong. We are a police state. Have been for a while. And again, as I've said many times, the black community in particular, in particular is the political canary in the coal mine, the early warning system, because whatever happens to their community will eventually happen to all of us. So the black community has been screaming in, in protest, no justice, no peace, no, no racist police. And they're right. And, you know, according to this New York Times writer, the American police are facing a crisis in legitimacy. Well, they should, because they're not legitimate. So this moment right now where we're seeing the First Amendment criminalized further, where we're seeing you know, not only black community and communities of color being attacked by police, but now, you know, there was this one incident where a, a couple police officers pounded on an elderly woman who had Alzheimer's, I believe, or dementia, who forgot to pay for something. And she weighed maybe 80 pounds sopping wet. And they slammed her to the ground. And she was white. It's coming. And all of this is grounded, according to this writer, in centuries of white supremacy. And it's true. But the white supremacy extends further. That's the excuse. But it's also supremacy of the very rich. And when, you, when this writer, when Todd from the New York Times compared our police system to countries where the brutal policing is systemic, it's been used to keep a privileged minority in power just like it is here. So the conclusion, according to this writer, is that, quote, policing in the United States is abridging the rights of many of its citizens and is making a lie of the constitutional promise of equal protection under the law, end quote. And that's exactly right. Okay. Um, there was, they quoted Vesla Weaver, who's a John Hopkins University political scientist, and Weaver studies policing and democratic legitimacy in the U.S. And according to Westlaw, quote, for these communities, police are how they are interpreting American democracy. They do draw links from their experiences with police to how robust their democratic citizenship is. And this is the this deals with the impunity that officers receive. Um, Megan Ming Francis, who is an associate professor at the University of Washington, and at last year was a visiting associate professor at Harvard, um, you know, was commenting on poor communities bearing the brunt of police violence and how black Americans from e every socioeconomic group are constantly attacked. To quote Fra Megan Ming Francis, quote, here in my home in Cambridge, with no police here in my home, I am still thinking about that. 
So this is, you know, again, an inst- the police are meant to keep certain forces down, to keep a privileged minority in power, which is the rich. And so basically this article goes on and they talk about how in divided societies, okay, and we live in a divided society, this bad apples idea that's choosing to see the problem in that limited purview is, quote, not a capacity issue, but a political choice, according to Kate Cronin Furman, who is a lecturer in political science at the University College London. And Furman has studied abuses in Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. According to Dr. Cronin Furman, quote, what this does is to tell marginalized communities that they are never safe, that they don't possess the full panoply, panoply of citizenship rights, and that their humanity is always in question, end quote. And it's all very true. So, and then police preserve the position of the elites in the hierarchy. And this is the tricky part. The police do it. There's, there's an implied permission between the elites and what they want and what the police are willing to do. And it's an implied permission as opposed to explicit top-down orders, which is exactly the way the mob works. They don't say, okay, I want you to murder this guy over here. What they say is, you need to get rid of him. There's enough plausible deniability about the role of the very rich and the elites in this police brutality that they can walk away. Okay. So, you know, what do we do about it? First of all, you can't solve a problem unless you're willing to look at it honestly. And the first thing is to understand that the problems we have with policing aren't because police are doing something contrary to the way they were trained. They're doing exactly what they were trained to do. Their role is to preserve the elites in power and to divide the rest of us. And if we dare, to want an actual functional popular democracy, their role is to pound us into the ground. Make no mistake about it. There is a group of researchers that have come together, both from John Hopkins and Yale, and they, they've created this project called the Portals Policing Project. And what they've done is they've taken shipping containers and they've turned them into temporary meeting spaces. And they put these shipping containers, these temporary meeting spaces, in some dozen uh, neighborhoods in six American cities. These are all neighborhoods that are over-policed. And each one, each portal was set up with communications equipment so that people in different cities could actually talk to people in other portals in another city, like they were actually in the same space. The researchers analyzed the data from thousands of these portal conversations during a uh, three-year time period. And what they found was a portrait of American life, quote, that bore striking similarities to what Dr. Cronin Furman observed in Asia and Africa, end quote. Okay, Dr. Weaver, the John Hopkins professor who was one of the lead researchers on the project, quoted saying, quote, Portal's participants were actually narrating something akin to an authoritarian enclave. That's scary. And conversation after conversation, the researchers found that 
people in these over-policed neighborhoods, they knew their rights. They also knew that they had been denied their rights. And they knew, but once again, they knew they had a right to remain silent, but they were so frightened based on police intimidation and harassment that they, they gave up that right, just like anybody would, most people would, after they've been tortured. And the people in these communities have been tortured by the police. And so um, to go on, this quote, again, I believe it's from Dr. Weaver, quote, what they're experiencing is very similar in the sense of high levels of abandonment and state neglect alongside high levels of surveillance. Looks very much like the political violence in the Jim Crow South. It looks very much like authoritarian regimes, end quote. So this is the way not to police, okay? And they even compared it, what's happening in the United States to other governments like South Africa and Northern Ireland. You know, this writer talked about how in Northern Ireland there was a, a, a Good Friday agreement. And this was supposed to basically end four decades of violent sectarian struggle, okay? Keep in mind, at the time, Northern Ireland was a war zone. And it also promised police review and reforms. Okay, same in South Africa. But it didn't work so well. In South Africa, according to Johnny Steinberg, a lecturer at Oxford, who studies South African policing and politics, quote, police kept the same apartheid era practices of heavy groups of heavily armed paramilitaries. Okay, Dr. Steinberg went on to say, let me see now, that, quote, what the U.S. can learn is negative. It's a paradigm case of how not to police a poor urban population, end quote. So, and then it goes on. There's a Yale Law School professor who, named Tom Tyler who studies policing and how it dovetails with government legitimacy. And to quote Tom Tyler, quote, the American police in the last couple of decades have deployed themselves in a threatening manner. Um, the thing is, it's not just the last couple of decades. It just depends on basically who you are, how poor are you, and what's the color of your skin. So to move on, they talk about portals. Ms. Magazine wrote an article uh, by Emma Coleman in last July in 2020. And the headline is, When Cities Replace Police with Social Workers. And it deals with the idea, what if we cut police budgets and sent that money over for specially trained uh, social workers, they did defunding the police, and so on and so forth. Okay, so this on the surface sounds like a good idea. Reducing police budgets, sending it for social workers and other similar type of, of uh, functions. Now, you have to remember something, though. In the past, among poor populations, the social worker was, at times, a softer version of the police. Okay, social workers came into uh, communities of color and low-income communities with certain uh, assumptions, assumptions that reflected a white, upper-middle-class or upper-class type idea and they would threaten people, take people's children away if they didn't meet certain standards, which really didn't reflect on whether a child was being abused or not. So the idea of a co-responder model 
you know, with social workers, we need to make sure that whoever comes in is properly trained and understands how these communities have been abused and not to compound the issue with additional abuse, albeit of a softer nature. And so they talk about different communities that have done just that. Um, you know, again, talking about crisis intervention, teaching, have social workers that can de-escalate tense situations, work with people that have cases of active psychosis, media conflicts, and so on and so forth. Um, and that sounds really nice, but you have to remember, as I just said, social workers in the past have been um, used to uphold oppressive systems, okay? Um, and so you have to really understand that Billy Bromage, who is a Yale University lecturer in psychiatry, um, had something to say about this. Quote, social workers are sometimes seen as police light because we're used to being in a position of power over people. But it would be huge to have people who aren't used to that power role, people who've just lived experience with these problems. Okay, so we have to make sure that we're not compounding the problem. And then we have this situation, people in the, especially in the burbs, all right, especially white suburban women, I hate to sound like I'm stereotyping, but they're worried about, well, what about violent crime? Well, there was another story, and it dealt with that situation, okay, from the New York Times. And it was written by Jeff Asher and Ben Horowitz. And the headline was, how do the police actually spend their time? And it was really an interesting snapshot because when they analyzed what police do in uh, quite a few different settings, that the amount of time that's devoted to handling violent crime is really minuscule, 4% or less. So what are they doing the, their other 96%? And there's been talk of what they call unbundling the police. In other words, and what unbundling refers to is to redirect some of the duties that they have and take away some of the funding. Again, unbundling is kind of like defunding and hire more kinds of workers that, that can effectively work with the homeless, work with the mentally ill, work with people that are undergoing a drug overdose, work with people, minor traffic problems. Okay, why do you need militarily trained police to deal with tr minor traffic offenses? Okay, um, and I recall a story years ago, there was this judge in St. Louis, and um, I won't mention her name, black female judge though, and there was this young man who she sentenced to life in prison at the tender age, I think, of 13. And now she's come back and she has regretted her decision and so on and so forth. That was the same judge. And when my mother was fighting cancer, I had um, this, pay, I, I had basically a parking meter violation that I'd already paid. And I had paid again and again because they kept saying I hadn't paid in St. Louis City. And the last time I paid, I used a postal money order. I had my receipt and I sent it um, registered mail. I had my return receipt, all my proof. Got into court. And this judge decided that she just didn't like me. Stood there and sat there and insulted me and threatened me. The same judge. And I didn't respond to her abuse. 
And then finally, as I produced my proof, said, well, all right, then just pay the extra little fee. And I wasn't going to argue with her. Um, basically, what happened was, under my breath, she could hear me say very quietly, oh, brother. At that point, she told the police to take me into custody, and I was threatened with six months in jail because uh, basically it was a contempt of court. And then while I was there, the police tried to intimidate me. Now, she changed her mind last minute, but this is an example of how something as minor as an already paid parking meter violation can escalate into something else. And by the way, a year later, the same people that I was saying, I think they're running a scam, you need to investigate. Turns out they were, and they were arrested. But this is a good example of how over-policing the minor things escalates into something else. And it has to stop. And that's what this article is really talking about. All right? That basically law enforcement, they don't deal with violent crime that much. Even the FBI as documented by um, several different groups, and actually including the legislative legislative law, the FBI Uniform Crime Report definition of violent crime is far more narrow than frequently broader state definitions. And the Uniform Crime Report, according to the FBI, defines violent crime as homicide, robbery, rape, and aggravated assault. Okay, but the state... These minor incidents are also lumped in there, okay? And they shouldn't be. So we need to kind of look at this. In New Orleans, officers spend, they apparently found out officers spend 4% of their time responding to calls for serious violent crimes. Uh, gun violence was even smaller, 0.7% of the time. Uh, and that was responding to homicides and non-fatal shooting incidents. Domestic violent calls. Um, are not basically 7.3% of an officer's time. And there were similar patterns in Montgomery County in Maryland and in Sacramento, California. Uh, Montgomery County officers spent 4.1% of their time responding to violent crime um, and 0.1% of homicides in Sacramento. Officers spent 3.7% of their time responding to serious violent crime and 0.1% on homicides and firearm assaults. So why do we need all these different cops? Now, the writers of this article that I just mentioned, Jeff Asher and Benjamin Horowitz, are crime analysts. They're based in New Orleans, and they are co-founders of AH Datalytics. So all this stuff is basically saying that the police are behaving as thugs. They're behaving as dictators, as brutal as a brutal army that has uh, basically um, encamped on all of us and denied us our rights, because that's exactly what they were designed to do. In conclusion, the Derek Chauvin guilty verdicts have been touted by some as evidence the system has indeed worked. I maintain that's not the case. Chauvin's own colleagues claimed that his use of force against George Floyd was not consistent with their training or their stated practice. Both statements are lies, blatant lies. Chauvin did exactly as he and other police have been trained to do. Chauvin's actions were evil, no doubt. He was indifferent to George Floyd's suffering. 
and he deserves to spend the rest of his t- days in jail. But to claim this case was merely another bad apple is an insult to injury. Police forces in the U.S. were designed to do exactly what Chauvin did to George Floyd and countless others. The problem isn't a few bad apples. The problem traces back to the mythology of policing that white Americans and affluent white Americans have embraced that protect and serve big lie. And keep in mind that slogan protect and serve was further set to be idolized in on television programs. The old dragnet series to protect and serve. It's not true. Policing in the United States has always existed to protect and serve the very rich, period. Police first acted as slave hunters and then as strike breakers against new migrants daring to demand humane treatment, daring to demand an end to an 80-hour or 100-hour work week, daring to demand an end to work days that were 14, 16 hours long, daring to demand an end to children being nearly beaten to death by foremen in factories as child laborers because they didn't work fast enough, daring to demand a right to not be locked in a factory when a fire breaks out and then they all perish, daring to demand the right to a fair living wage. When you compound that with the many crimes against humanity, against people of color, especially the black community. First, it was slave hunters, and then in Jim, during Jim Crow, police were used, as I said before, to arrest black folk on things that weren't crimes so they could feed them into the convict slave labor, slave labor chain. That's it. We have a right to demand that our tax dollars be spent in a way that benefits us. We have a right to demand full accountability and transparency from every single police department. And yes, we have a right to demand that our police departments be reduced, defunded, and funding sent to other services that would better benefit our people to social services, to mental health services, to public health during a public health crisis especially, to public education, and so on and so forth. We won't get these things accomplished, these goals accomplished. We will not stop this brutal police state that we are living in. And make no mistake about it, we are living in a police state. It may not be as obvious as communist China, it may not be as obvious as somewhere in South America, but it is a police state nonetheless. And they dress it up and they disguise it using legal trickery and deceit to to give them some sense of false legitimacy. And now our precious First Amendment is on the firing line, where protected First Amendment activities are being criminalized. We cannot allow this to continue any longer. We must stop this. We must demand that for maybe the first time in our history, we actually have a a true democracy. And that will probably start with curtailing the army that the rich have brought to protect them. And that's namely our police forces. We deserve better. And for everyone that was murdered by police, 
for all the Michael Browns, the George Floyds, Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, Mike Brown, all of them. We must fight for something better. And that's my report. Thank you, Janine. And that's it for us this week. This is PNN. I am your host, Brooke Hines. We will see you again next time.